Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. You know, recently I've had uh, an interesting time creating podcasts. I enjoy doing the historical highlights of Disney. They're a lot of fun and I found a lot more information and I understand a lot more, enough to be able to provide some context about the history and development of the Walt Disney World Resort and some Disney history sort of in general. And it's kind of fun to talk about those things. And you know, I gotta say the research is a blast. I love learning about some of the historical elements or perhaps more of the details around some of those historical elements because I've always been mildly aware of them. But I'm also looking at the company on the outside and realizing that there's a lot of things going on that require a little more attention that I need to say something about because they're not necessarily good things. Look, I know that in the past I've had some mild rants mixed in about how the Disney company is doing and some of the direction they're taking. And I think it's warranted to a large degree because the company had an opportunity a couple of years ago as the pandemic was getting started to stand up and be this different company, to look at things differently, to experience it differently. They could change the way we look at theme parks. They could change the way we look at media, the way we look at uh, sports. And for better or for worse, they took that and they actually did do some things that did change those paradigms. And they're not necessarily good things, especially when it comes to the theme parks. And I'll talk about that in just a minute, but that's something that I think warrants a little discussion. And that's why I kind of come around to these sort of, I'll say rants, but they're not really rants. It's just sort of discussing the goods and bads that go along with some of the decisions they're making. You know, they have an opportunity here. They still have an opportunity in front of them, though I think their die has been cast, if you will, but they still have an opportunity to kind of correct course a little bit and make things perhaps a little better. Now, whether they will or they won't, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. It's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, I, I'm a shareholder and stock is doing great, so I'm very happy there. But as a guest, I'm still not convinced that they're doing the right things. Now, to be fair, I haven't been to a Disney park since December of 2019. Because of COVID, because of my own personal th thoughts about how we're handling the pandemic, and because of uh, some other commitments that I've had over the last two years, and especially more recently, I just haven't had an opportunity to go. And I have to say that while I appreciate the reservation system that they have in place, and I think it's a really good thing, I think it actually does solve a couple of underlying problems that Disney had. So I have no issues with the idea of having the um, reservation system. The fact that they have a reservation system throws me off a little bit because I have to do more planning. The few times that I actually had an opportunity to maybe go, there wasn't a reservation available for the park I wanted to go to. So it makes it a little more challenging. Not that I necessarily would have gone again, you know, my own thoughts around things, but it's kind of an interesting mix of things that happens. Now, you may be saying to yourself, now, Dave, come on, you could go, it's COVID, whatever, you know, they're doing the best they can. It's really not that much of a risk. And 
I'll generally grant you that. I mean, we go to grocery stores, we do all these other things. I think my bigger problem has to do with the fact that Disney became sort of a political entity to a large degree. And because they're beholden to their shareholder, to their vacation club members, and to the state because they are a special improvement district in the state and they have to do things that the state kind of tells them to do, I think they got kind of trapped in things. And it's sort of a mild, almost boycott, just because I think that they didn't necessarily do the right things, but I don't know that they had any choice. I mean, they were kind of, their hands were kind of tied to a degree, and I think they're doing a reasonably good job. And again, back to, look, they're keeping people employed. That's a very good thing. They're making people happy. That's a good thing, too. So I have, it's kind of a mixed bag for me. I have this weird sort of thought about it. But they're doing what they think is right. And, you know, whatever that means, whatever right means, I, I guess that's good. So I have some minor issues with a couple of things, and maybe they're a little bit more than minor. And it's just kind of, kind of funny how these things lay out. It's as you look at Disney and they start thinking about thematics and using the imagineering skills of people to really develop an immersive storyline, what you're seeing is sort of this removal of some of that immersiveness. I've talked in the past about Pirates of the Caribbean and the fact that they put the pirates playing chess in one of the queues. And the pirates playing chess is just one of those things that's there, right? It's a throwaway. You look at it and you go, why are those pirates there? Why are, they, why are they skeletons now? Why are they down in this dungeon? What's the backstory there? And you have to use your imagination to come up with something to make it actually come together. They don't tell you why they're there. They don't tell you any of the story there. It's just sort of your imagination taking hold. And it's kind of an interesting thing that happens when you stop and think about it because you have to actually fill in the blanks yourself. And it's kind of a neat little immersive piece. You're in the Castillo. You're there in this really cool place. And it's, it's kind of amazing. You have this storyline that you're being told. There's no story that goes along with pirates. If you've listened to my podcast for a while, you know that I've talked about this in the past. There is no story when it comes to the uh, pirates. There's no pirate tales that really stand out. They're all just folk tales. And so Disney captured on that piece of the imagination and created something that was this experience, right? Where you're going into the castle and you're going through and then you're riding on the Pirates of the Caribbean and you're seeing all these different things. And part of it is that immersive moment when you're in the queue. And by creating Fast Pass and then the Lightning Lane, they've eliminated the need to go through that queue. So you miss out on that part of the storytelling and you just go to the ride. And the ride's great, but it's missing that part of the storytelling. And the kind of the, oh, by the way, weird part, as I've mentioned before, is that they take you away from the pirates playing chess, right? When you're in the queue and you're standing there and you have a chance to see them, it's kind of neat. But if you're in the lightning lane, fast pass, whatever, you go past it and you don't see it because they're, taking you, they're not taking you through it. Maybe, maybe you notice it, maybe you don't, but it's not part of your experience because they're saying, hey, we want to get you on the ride faster. And you're missing that immersive part of the story. And that troubles me a lot because you're not telling the, you're not being good storytellers anymore. And that's what I think is kind of missing to a large degree. And the other side of it is Disney has made a decision to change the way they think about storytelling because now to get a good story, to get that whole immersive story, you've got to pay for it. So if you want to be able to go and see, say, Rise of the Resistance, there's really almost 
no way you can do it without paying extra to get your Lightning Lane Plus or whatever they're calling it. You're, you're paying for it. I guess it's just Lightning Lane where you're paying to go in there and actually see the rise of the resistance. There's an immersive storyline that they're giving you, but you've got to pay for it. Similarly, over at the uh, uh, Navi's Workshop, I believe it's called, where you can build a lightsaber. You've got to pay to go in and build that lightsaber and have that experience and understand what it's all about and see it and experience it. If you don't pay, you can't even see it. It's behind a closed door, so you can't even see what it's all about. There's no hype about it. You only see it online or a video or whatever, and that's the only way you can experience it if you're not willing to fork over the $200 to get a lightsaber. Then you also have uh, the space-themed restaurant in Epcot, uh, Space 220. Very cool idea where they have this uh, elevator, this space elevator. It's a theoretical idea that someone came up with it could actually potentially work. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome, but it, it could work to get someone into space via an elevator. And they take you in the elevator and they take you up to this restaurant. And it's kind of cool and it harkens back to Mission to Mars, Mission to the Moon, where you're in this theater and you have a screen at the top, screen at the bottom, and you're looking at it. And you kind of get a sense of actually traveling in this elevator going up to, the, to space. And it's really kind of an immersive experience. Then you get up there and you're in the restaurant and you see the vistas and you're looking out at you know space and you're looking out at uh, astronauts and uh, other um, satellites and things that are out there and you see the stars. Very, very cool. But you can only go up there if you have, have a reservation and you're willing to fork over the money for a, a meal. I think it's like $55. So, you know, to get that experience, that immersive experience, you have to spend more. And I have some issues with that. Because the only way to get the true Disney imaginative experience, where the Imagineers have really thought it through, is to pay extra. And don't get me started about the uh, Star Wars-themed hotel. For $6,000, you can have an extra experience that's a little bit Star Wars-themed. And how good or bad it is remains to be seen. But the principle is you've got to pay to have that experience. You cannot go and visit that hotel and just have an experience. And it's weird that they didn't set up like different tiers where you could maybe go in and you could have a reservation to go into the restaurant. You know, maybe you could find a way in and you could be part of the storyline that way. And they don't have a way that you could like get a, just a room for a night and have a not an, ex, you know, the not experience, right? You're just there and you're experiencing it sort of, but without all the depth to it or something like that, where there's no ability to take it in unless you're willing to fork over all the money. There's something really odd about that. And it is about all the bottom line. And then you hear Bob Chapek's comments about, you know, how the guest experience is paramount and whatever he's saying, but it's, it's feels like lip service. Like they're not actually thinking through what it is that they've got there and how to get to somewhere more interesting. And this whole thing about intellectual property and making sure that there's all these different things that are just lightly themed to a concept rather than being lightly themed to an actual product. It's a very odd sort of thing, and it's, it's kind of, I don't know, off-putting in a way, where you just don't feel like there's enough there to really give you something back. And so it just feels strange. And then, you know, given the reservation system and the park capacity, which I believe at this point is still somewhere close to 50%, they haven't told us yet, and not everything's open yet. Not all the attractions are open. I think most of them are now. Not all the experiences are open. The meet and greets aren't open. Some of the restaurants still aren't open. So even at 50% or so, it feels very, very crowded, much like it's 100%, because people are coming and they want to have their vacation and they want to have their fun, and I get it. I totally get it. I, I appreciate where they're coming from, but it's just kind of strange when you think about it, how this all kind of comes together. 
So that's kind of my thought on theme parks and what they're doing and sort of that, that nature of what they're doing. Now, they still haven't figured out streaming and what they're trying to do there. There's still a lot of questions about whether they're going to do more streaming or whether they're going to continue to release to theaters or how that's going to work out. They're still experimenting a little bit, even though Bob Chapek has said in the past that he's set on going to movie theaters first. They've already seen some changes to that again. So it's sort of, I still think it's an experiment. I don't know where this is going to net out, but Disney has an opportunity here to really set the standard. And a lot of companies are watching them in terms of what they're going to do. So stay tuned to see where that nets out. Sports, you know, they keep bringing in more sports and bringing in more things. And ESPN has become this behemoth, bigger than it was before. And uh, with ESPN Plus getting more content, they're really pushing that streaming service to have more content without being uh, tied to cable. Remember that they were making around $4 per subscriber through cable companies through these package deals. I mean, that's a lot of money to make on every cable subscriber. With more people cutting the cords, you're not making that profit anymore. So now they have to find other revenue streams. So what they're doing is this ESPN Plus service, which is a streaming service. So for around that same, I don't know, 4 or $5, something like that, you are still getting premium content, but now it's streamed instead of coming over the air, right? So it's sort of a different, or through cable, so it's sort of a different way of looking at it. And they're changing the paradigm there too. And because they keep soaking in more and more sports, it's hard to find sports in other places anymore. Uh, you know, there's, uh, they keep grabbing other things. I think they grab part of the NHL package. They have part of the NBA package. Of course, they have the NFL. And they have some Major League Baseball. Um, and they do some, I think they do the MLS too. So if the five major sports, if you want to call them five, they have all of them. And, or a piece of them anyway. And it's just amazing how they dominate the sports market in that case. So Disney is really doing some very positive things in that sense where they're dominating it and they're making more money and they're, you know, kind of changing the way we think about sports and the way we consume sports. You know, if you think about going to a sporting event, I haven't been to a sporting event. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I, I was remembering um, the last time I went to a sporting event, I used to go a lot. I was a Miami Dolphins season ticket holder. I used to go see the Marlins a lot and see the Panthers a lot, see the Heat sometimes down here in South Florida. But I, uh, haven't been to a sporting event since probably the summer of 2018. It just lost its luster for me. You know, the cost of doing business, the cost of going there, the cost of uh, parking, all of these things for, you know, for a product that was okay, but I didn't really get as much out of it. I found other ways to spend my dollars. That's not to say I wasn't interested and I didn't watch the sports. It just changed the way I thought about the sports a little bit. And it's funny how, you know, over time, that's changed for me. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only person. I've talked to some of my friends who have similar sort of opinions about the fact that the sporting landscape has changed. Still watch our teams, but maybe not as interested in going as often. Anyway, so that's, you know, that's sort of Disney and what they're doing and some of the things that, that just have come to mind recently. Now, there was one other thing that caught my attention this week, and that was Abigail Disney. Abigail, of course, is the granddaughter of Roy Disney, Walt's brother, and the daughter of Roy E. Disney, who was the last Disney family member to serve on the board at the Disney Company, the last person to work for the Walt Disney Company. And he retired from the board in the, I think it was early 2000s, and, uh, you know, hasn't, so the Disney family has had no connection to the board since then, or to the company directly. Uh, the family still... Uh, has some stock in the company, and I think they still get some some sort of you know annual payouts because of how well the company is doing, because their name is associated with it. I don't know what the exact deal is there, but they benefit financially in some way from the company. And it's interesting to hear 
uh, from their perspective, you know, how they think the company is doing at this point. Now, mostly they're kind of quiet. They don't say a whole lot. They, you know, they take the money and they, they you know, they accept that the, the company is the company. But Abigail is kind of the exception. I've talked about her on my podcast before. She has a lot of thoughts about how the company is being run and how her father would have thought about it, given what he told them, and how her grandfather and her granduncle thought about what they were doing with the parks and what they were building with the Disney brand. And she thinks, generally speaking, that Disney has lost its way to a degree and doesn't have that same sort of you know, family-friendly sort of thing. And she's spoken out a lot about it a lot over the last several years. And interestingly, she has no, you know, no connection to the company, as I said. She, uh, they won't even return her, fo- her phone calls from the, uh, the, what they call the C-suite, the executive suite. Um, they rarely return her emails. They don't talk to her. So she has no influence over the company whatsoever. And she still profits from them. So, you know, she's got this interesting connection there. But when you listen to her talk, she's kind of got an interesting perspective on the company and what the company is doing. So she, um, she's actually creating a documentary, or I guess she created a documentary about Disney and how it's, the thing that's lost its way is the way they treat their cast members versus the executives. So Bob Chapek, he just uh, was granted a $66 million payout by the company. Now the company pays uh, better than whatever minimum wage is in the different locations that they're in. So in Florida, for example, minimum wage is $10. They pay a minimum of 15 to their cast members to come in and work. So it's above the minimum wage, but it's not above the living wage, right? There's a, there's a living wage. There's, there's a spot where the federal government or the state government sets a minimum wage that you have to pay in order to uh, have people have uh, basically be able to live. So you can afford housing and food, basic necessities. And then there's a standard of living where you're able to afford those things and have a little bit of extra money and be able to afford, you know, beyond that, uh, things like, you know, a car or actually get into home ownership or do some other things. So there's some other things that you can do to, to, uh, to expand your quality of life if you can get to that living wage. And the problem is that there's a poverty line somewhere between the two. The living wage is pretty much above the poverty line and the minimum wage is below the poverty line. So what happens is if you're making minimum wage, you really are at the poverty line. You can't afford a lot. And the prices in Florida and Southern California keep going up. You know, there's, it's a great place to live. The weather's nice, all these things. So the prices keep, price points keep going up for things. And so that living, that living wage keeps going up and the, you're separated further from the, uh, from the poverty level because you're not at that level or you're right at that level. So you have to rely on food stamps or uh, rooming with other people or doing things that are a little bit outside of what you might expect people to be able to do. So Abigail was looking at that and she said, look, I think it's interesting that we have you know, this company that is so enormously profitable. They make billions. And the payout for the CEO was $66 million. And if you put that in context, $66 million if you say, let's say somebody makes $50,000 a year, which for a cast member is a lot of money because cast members don't generally make that much, but let's say they do, you could pay out over 1,300 cast members' salaries with the amount that Bob Chapek made. So, you know, there's an inequity there and she's got a problem with the huge inequity problem. And so she was talking about her documentary uh, and here's a clip of it from CNN that kind of gives you that perspective. 
It is known as the happiest place on earth. Disneyland, Disney World, the whole Disney brand. But a new documentary premiering at the Sundance Film Festival tonight puts that to the test. Here's a preview. By a show of hands, how many of you have someone you know that works at Disney that's on food stamps? Wow. How many of you know somebody who works at Disney who's slept in their car in the last oh. couple of years? How many of you know somebody who have gone without medical care because they can't afford it. <laughs> How many of you all have children? I am somebody who doesn't have kids. I don't have the finances to take care of a child in the way that I would like to. It's affected my ability to family plan and to look towards my future as far as my personal life. And it's not you know, this is not where I thought I'd be at 33. The film is called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. It's directed, produced, narrated by Roy Disney's granddaughter, Abigail Disney. She joins me now. Thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. Wage inequality. It is well documented, right? And you began speaking out about this a few years ago. What is it about it that made it your passion? your drive, your life's work that got you here. Yeah, I, you know, I've been tortured since I was a little girl by the fact that I knew I was so lucky. And um, it, it just always bothered me. It never really felt right. You know, I was raised in a pretty religious home and it didn't match with what I thought I was hearing every Sunday. Um, so I've always worked in one way or another on, on trying to make the world a better place. But, you know, honestly, I, I, when I when I saw this so close to home, I felt like I couldn't stay silent. I have to say this that part of the documentary that we just filmed, it's very, very impactful. You're sitting down with a group of employees from Disneyland. Um, what do the employees um, that you profile, especially the four that you mainly profile, what do they think about this film and 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 the publicity and the focus now? I, I am so proud to say that they have all told me they really love it and they're really proud to have worked with us because, you know, they were engaged with the union already because they felt that it shouldn't be happening to them and they didn't want it to happen to other people either. Um, they all work so hard. And um, so I, I'm excited that they all feel really delighted. Three of them have, have talked about moving on and not working at Disney anymore which is heartbreaking to me because Disney used to be a place you stayed for a lifetime. Um, but that isn't, isn't true of the low wage employees anymore. And we reached out to Disney um, to ask for a statement. And I want to read for everyone the statement that Disney offered us. Um, and they said this, the well-being and aspirations of our employees and cast will always be our top priority. We provide a leading and holistic employment package that includes competitive pay and comprehensive benefits for our cast members to grow their careers and care for their families. That starts with fair pay and leading entry wages, but also includes affordable medical coverage, access to tuition-free higher education, subsidized childcare for eligible employees, as well as pathways for personal and professional development. And a spokesperson also pointed to that the company outpaces statewide minimum wage um, State minimum statewide minimum wage levels in both Florida and California. And recently, the company agreed to a 16% raise for certain workers. Do you see that as progress? 
Yes, I absolutely do. I see it as progress, and I'm delighted that they agreed to a wage hike for their low-wage employees. It's a great step in the right direction. It is only a step because low-wage employees are um, are not simply about getting more dollars into their pockets. They're also looking to be treated like humans. Um, there are a lot of things, and I think the education piece of it that they always feature when they push back on me is an interesting place to focus and drill a little deep on because they offer education on the theory that there is like this ladder you climb. And sure, you're in a low-wage job today, but if you take this education, then you'll move up to a better-paying job. And it sounds right, and it is a belief system Americans hold really tightly, but the the dark side of that, that mythology is that you're assuming that someone's going to come in at that same wage and do that same job um, when you rise into the next one. And so you're accepting that there is perpetually an underclass of people that have to do these incredibly hard jobs for not enough money. So $24 an hour is closer to the living wage in Anaheim. They've, they've come up to 18, which is brilliant. I'm happy. Brilliant. Good job, Disney. Um, but I'm talking about living wage and I'm talking about employers treating every single one of their employees as though they were in that job or as though their son or daughter were in that job. One little piece of context, a little clarification around something that Abigail said, and that had to do with the people that might get promoted from within Disney's policy and practices to try and promote. The challenge is that in the Walt Disney Company, it's such a large company, and especially at Walt Disney World, at least in my own experience, there were a large number of well-educated people with advanced degrees, sometimes certain certifications like lawyers or engineers or other people who were working in these entry-level jobs. And there are so many of them, and Disney is looking for very specific skills in some jobs that they'll hire from outside or somebody who had some experience in the past and overlook somebody who's on the inside who may have those skills. So people are there looking to maybe get promoted and have an opportunity to do something else, but Disney turns and looks somewhere else sometimes when they're hiring. And the number of jobs is relatively small versus the number of people that are in these entry-level jobs. So it's a really a kind of a inverse funnel, if you will, that you can't get into some of these jobs. Yeah, you can have the education. Yeah, you could get a little, a little more something, but that doesn't mean you're going to get promoted because there's fewer of those jobs and they're always looking to fill them with very specific people. So it's really challenging. Now, that's not to say she's absolutely right or absolutely wrong, right? It's just food for thought. When you think about Disney in the big picture and you think about what they're doing, like I said, there's some goods that they do and I love the entertainment aspect of it. So when I think about going back, I realize I have so many questions. Will it be the same for me? Will the magic still be there? Will I feel the same about it? Will I have that same emotional connection, connection that I had the last time I was there? Or will I be thinking about it in a different way? Will they immerse me enough where I'll go, okay, I'm good with it. Even though the cost is what it is, will it, be, will it meet my expectations? And I don't know what the answer to that is gonna be. I hope it's gonna be yes, that they will meet or exceed my expectations. But we'll see when I do finally get to go back. But as I look at the big picture of everything that's going on, I have to stop and you know, consider the fact that there's a lot of variables here and there's a lot of things that are going on that I don't know how this is gonna work out. Disney's gotta figure out you know, their way and 
I don't know if they're going to saturate things and finally find themselves pricing themselves out of the market or if, you know, become an exclusive sort of club where people can go if they can afford it or if something else is going to happen. Now, one other thing I want to point out, and this has to do with the way guests are behaving in the park. And I would argue that it's sort of that way people are behaving in general in society right now. There's sort of this, this thing we've been, you know, we've been closed off from people from so long. We've lost our social skills. We've lost some of our ability to interact. And there's a lot of angst. Some people feel very strongly uh, about the pandemic on one side or the other, or feel very strongly about other hot button issues. So there's a lot of that going on. And what you see is that spills over. You see, see it every day. People drive more aggressively. Um, you have the whole Karen situation, if you want to call it that. So when you look at everybody, you say, wow, there's some, some interesting situations out there. And Disney is starting to show that too. You're starting to see that. Now in the 1990s or so, I guess early 2000s, Pleasure Island existed and there was um, a number of incidents. It was a great place to go for an evening. But what happened was it became more uh, open to people who lived in the area who may have been late in high school or early in college and they would come together and they would congregate there at Pleasure Island. It wasn't very expensive to get in. They would come, they would hang out, and they would be in groups. So these are basically, you know, late teens and groups that are hanging out. And sometimes they were members of different clubs, societies, gangs, whatever you want to call it, social groups, I don't know, whatever. But they were parts of different things, and they would uh, interact when they were there. And there were some fights that happened within the confines of Pleasure Island. And Disney had to regularly call in the police to keep the peace. And it wasn't worth Disney's effort to try and keep that up because Pleasure Island wasn't turning a huge profit. It was just supposed to be a fun place, right? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the moneymaker. So they decided ultimately to close it down for a lot of reasons, that being among them. And they did away with, you know, did away with that because they were trying to do away with some of this not family-friendly stuff that was going on. Now what you're seeing at the theme parks is that you're starting to see a sort of a recurrence of that. But the difference is, it's not always teenagers. Sometimes it's adults. And they get hot about one issue or another. The videos I've seen to date are mostly people appear to be cutting cues and someone gets upset about it. You know, so you're waiting in line, you're waiting for a long time, someone winds up cutting in somehow. How they do that, what they do is irrelevant then they wind up going to actual blows. They actually go to fisticuffs, they're hitting each other, they're tackling each other, they're wrestling with each other. Whatever they're doing, they're taking that moment and they're taking away the Disney experience because they're fighting inside a Disney theme park. And Disney doesn't know how to deal with this yet. They haven't quite figured it out. It's the most magical place on earth. Cast members are taught not to interact, not to intervene, not to be a part of it. Just, you know, kind of keep people away let them do their, do their thing, and then let the, the security and the police deal with it. And I can't say whether the security or police have dealt with it. I've only seen the videos where people are fighting in the park. And I think to myself, what the heck is going on here? The people are actually fighting while they're in a Disney park. You spent a hundred bucks or more, you're in the park, you get in a line, maybe you, maybe you got a lightning lane, maybe you got Genie or Genie Plus, whatever, and you're in the line and somehow you wind up fighting with somebody? You, you actually come to blows? How does that happen? What is going on here? You know, what happened to the sort of the, the polite nature of everyone getting along and doing stuff? Like I said, there's a bigger issue in society right now that we will overcome as we start to get back out there and be more social, I'm sure. But in the short term, it's just weird, right? It goes along with all of these things. And people 
feeling a certain way about things. And it's, it's like we just need to take a step back sometimes. And Disney needs to learn how to deal with it too. They need to figure out how they want to deal with these situations when somebody gets out of hand like that. I don't think they have an answer for it yet, but they're going to have to find one. And it may require more police to be on Disney property, or it may require some other things to happen, or, you know, immediate ejection policies or something to get this under control. Because what you don't want is this to not be a family-friendly environment anymore. You know, how are you setting an example for anyone when all you do is you, you come to blows over someone cut in front of you in line? Really? I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I have issues with stuff like that when it happens. And... You know, it just detracts from the overall experience. Then you see other videos of people misbehaving and doing things that they shouldn't be doing at the parks. Putting on moderately adult entertainment or people climbing over a, a railing to go somewhere or people going backstage when they shouldn't be going backstage. And they all, you know, most of them get trespass, trespass warnings. I heard about one guy who broke in somewhere, got, uh, got caught, uh, was given a warning because he hadn't done anything. He just kind of went behind the scenes, got a warning and then went back and did something else, got arrested, got a trespass warning, and then came back and did it again. You know, what, what's happening here is that you're starting to see people feel like they want to take that bigger risk. And because of this social media and these, you know, YouTube celebrity type things, people are willing to take the risk to, you know, get a little fame. Look at me, look what I did. And this is, you know, it's got to stop. And Disney has to find a way to put a stop to it and make it better, but still maintaining that family-friendly sort of thing where it doesn't feel like you're being policed all the time. You want to be away from the world. You want to be removed from it. So I've got many questions about, you know, sort of the future of Disney in that sense, where you look at what they're doing and you think to yourself, wait, what, is this the right thing? Are they doing the right things? Are they trying to make it better? Or, or are they just looking at that bottom line, that dollar figure and going, yeah, we're good. I'm not going to worry about it. You know, it's one-offs. It's, you know, one or two people doing that. But is it one or two people doing it? Or are we just seeing the tip of the iceberg and we don't really know what's going on beyond that? I don't know. But it concerns me a little bit. And, you know, then you've got the potential backlash that comes from some of these things when you, start, when you make a decision and you're going to do something. So how do you balance that? So if they do decide to make a change to their security procedures, then what? And as they roll new things out, you have to wonder a little bit too. So you look at the new hotel, the, uh, the cruiser, right? The, the Star Wars themed hotel. And you think to yourself, what if that isn't successful? What if people paid a lot of money for it and it's not successful, then what? So there are many questions I've got about how Disney is managing things and what's going to happen to them themselves in the future. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. And like I said, I don't mean to be ranting about the company. That's not my intent. I'm just trying to understand what I'm seeing around and where we go from here. So there you go. That's uh, the story that I wanted to share with you today. And um, we'll be back next time to talk more about some other hist historical elements of Disney. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. For my One Little Spark segment today, I wanted to take a minute and just talk about the lawsuit that Brian Flores former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, submitted against the Dolphins, the NFL, and two other NFL teams. And overtly, the problem here is racism, that he saw this racist environment, especially when it came to black head coaches looking for jobs. In fact, um, he points out, and I've, the, there was another coach that was offered the job before he even got a chance to interview for one of the jobs that was out there, one of the teams that he was uh, named in the lawsuit. 
And so it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, th this comes to light. Now, the suit is deeper than that, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. You have mostly white, mostly male owners, mostly older. And they're, they've got strong opinions about the world and the way the world works. And they're making their money how they're making their money. And they want their players to just do what, they're, do what they have to do to make them more money. And they want them to stay quiet about other things, right? So Colin Kaepernick, a few years ago, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, he decided to quite literally take a stand by kneeling, that's kind of funny, and actually stand up to racism in a way, and actually take the knee to call attention to racism. Now, what Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick did, called attention to it, and it, he became a lightning rod. Whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, he did something that, that actually made him the, the, the cause celeb. Where this goes is there's a connection here that Colin Kaepernick was suing the NFL because he said he was essentially blackballed. And he won his lawsuit. And one of the key reasons that he won his lawsuit was because the owner of the Miami Dolphins, remember the team at the center of this controversy with Brian Flores, Stephen Ross, what he said was that his view of player protests was shaped by the former president tying the NFL protest to disrespecting the flag or the military. So he said, quote, so I think that's really incumbent upon us to adopt that because that's how I think the country is now interpreting the kneeling issue, end quote. And that specific statement caused him to become somebody they deposed in the Colin Kaepernick case. And he spoke his mind and he said what he thought he needed to say about the reality of the world and Colin Kaepernick kneeling and so forth. And it became one of the reasons that a jury found the NFL culpable in this. So what they did is came to an agreement. They gave Colin Kaepernick a payout and they said, yeah, you can't blackball him anymore. He should be able to play in the NFL. Now, of course, Kaepernick never got another tryout with the team ever. Teams would hire me to be their quarterback before they'd call Colin Kaepernick. So the whole thing is kind of nuts if you think about it. So there, there is an element of racism certainly purveyant in the NFL and I would suspect in other sports to a degree as well. When we look at the money that the NFL makes and the way the NFL you know, profits from all of this, and certainly other leagues are similarly aligned, you have four basic revenue sources. The first is, of course, ticket sales. And uh, that's where you're making money to fund stadium operations and pay the people that are working there and you know, pay for the grounds crews and those kinds of things. And that, in that would include um, things like parking, concessions, you know, merchandise, all that stuff. The second way and the largest way these teams make money is through their revenue sharing because of the TV model they have, because they have this network TV coverage and they make a huge amount of money by the different networks signing on and paying for the rights to broadcast these games and they make it up through advertising. So there's, there's that partnership that happens and there's a huge profit sharing number that's there and that's the biggest sum of it. The third way is through their ventures outside of the sport. And these owners get involved in different things. And sometimes it's by uh, bringing on a sponsor advertiser or the official so-and-so of the, this team. And that's part of it. They're also involved in other things. There are some owners uh, in sports, including uh, NFL owners, who are involved in legalized gambling and owning stakes in companies that have some gambling operations going on. Now, there's probably a conflict of interest there. I wouldn't doubt it. But I have no way of knowing that. I'm just assuming that based on the fact that some of them are involved in gambling operations, there's probably a conflict, especially when you consider that buried in the lawsuit that the Dolphins owner 
had told the coach that he wanted him to lose games and was going to pay him for every loss. Now, if there is a conflict of interest there, if there's some tie-in and there's some gambling operation going on here, or even if there isn't and somehow the owner or his close associates profited off of this, there's a bigger problem. So you have to consider the big picture here that there's a lot more happening than just the racism piece on the top. And that's not to say the racism part should be downplayed in any way. It's just a more complicated and nuanced issue than we might ever know. So those are the three big ways that the, that the owners make money. The fourth way is through tax subsidies. And the owners get tax subsidies all the time. They get them to, for stadium improvements, they get them for the land use, they get them for various things. Um, they're always asking for some sort of a uh, handout, essentially, saying, hey, if we don't renovate the stadium, we might move. And so there's always money changing hands or a tax break or some subsidy given to them or something that benefits them financially. And you say to yourself, okay, that's fine, that is what it is, but here's the rub. It's at the cost of other things. So I'll give you two examples. One is in Tampa Bay, the Rays want a new stadium. And the community, I think it's the city of Tampa, wants to gift the owner some amount of money to have a stadium. And it's you know hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and then in the second breath that they take, they say, and we don't have any money for affordable housing, sorry. And you go, wait a second, you're gonna gift the owner some money to keep a sports franchise there, but not have affordable housing available to your community. So there's an element of racism that ties into that as well, that you're actually affecting people who are disadvantaged in the first place to help people who are totally advantaged. And you could do the, say the same thing out in the city of uh, Anaheim, the uh, Anaheim um, Angels are looking for a new stadium and they got some sweetheart deal from the city or the county or something and it violates California law because they didn't put it out to bid and offer it for affordable housing first. But again, it's about this fact that they wanted to give something back to wealthy owners rather than helping the community and the constituents in the community that they are there to serve. So there is a much bigger and deeper problem with all of this racism that comes out through all of this discussion. In other words, this lawsuit underscores all of what's happening in a way in society with the elite individuals at the top taking advantage of the people at the bottom. There is a really interesting problem here that I just wanted to highlight. Yes, this lawsuit is specifically about racism and the way the, the uh, coach was treated by the owner, but it's much deeper than that when you really peel back the onion and look at it. And that's kind of why I wanted to point it out. Well, there you go. That is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading 
one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 